0: Welcome everyone to What is Black, a parenting podcast that addresses issues important to raising healthy and thriving Black children and teens. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duche On today's episode, we're continuing our discussion about reimagining systems and institutions to better serve families raising Black children and teens with a specific focus on Black girls. According to data from the African American Policy Forum's the facts to know about the status of Black women as we enter the Biden year series. Black girls are seven times more likely to be suspended from school than white girls and four times more likely to be arrested at school. Black girls are over-disciplined and over-policed in our schools. To discuss this issue, I'm joined by guest Dr. Sharita Butler-Barnes, a developmental psychologist and associate professor at Washington University in St. Louis Brown School and Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass, a developmental psychologist and assistant professor in the Department of Human Services at the University of Virginia Curry School of Education. welcome dr Utla Barnes, to the show thank you it's a pleasure to be here thank you for having me oh well, since the last time we spoke and hopefully our listeners will go back to the previous episode when we talked about colorism and you were a guest um, on that show they'll get to, you know this is a this is a second treat for listeners to um, to to hear your words
1: of wisdom so thank you so much for joining yeah thank you for having me I'm excited anytime it's an opportunity to talk about um black girls and and healthy development, I am overjoyed
0: all right, so let's jump right into the conversation so on this on this episode, we're gonna talk about over policing and over disciplining of black girls. you know towards the end of twenty twenty there were several articles that came out about about this topic, and then even more recently um you know recent reports of black girls being Mm over-policed. So I wanted to, one of of people, I definitely wanted to have this conversation with you because of your area of, this is one of your areas of expertise, but I was wondering first if you could share your research on the issues of policing and over-disciplining of Black girls and why it's an important topic for us to really be talking, talking about and focusing on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so um, my research focuses on uh, Black girls primarily in school settings. And then I'll talk about how that sort of feeds into like over policing and over-disciplining the Black girls. And so within the school settings, I focus on um, the, the perceived treatment of um, from teachers, administrators, and staff who service Black girls in those educational settings and how these experiences shapes and impacts their racial and gender identity in terms of who they are and how they define themselves. And one of the major things that I'm um, primarily involved in with this work is You know, taking this work around them speaking about, you know, the way that they're being perceived in the environment, how they're being treated, and allowing Black girls to define and tell their own story about who they are and how they show up. And so through this work, in relation to over-policing and over-disciplining, I found that Black girls have mentioned being stereotyped um, with such images as being uh, lazy, as not being more um, academically motivated, as being sassy, as being ghetto, um, being disciplined unfairly for the way that they dress, perhaps the way they may wear their hair, and also being viewed and expected to conform to white femininity, right? And so what that means is that within these spaces, black girls are sort of viewed as less innocent um, in in terms of how they might speak about um, issues around problem solving. They're sort of expected to conform to sort of this heteronormativity in how they define themselves. And so there's definitely um, Black girl voice that's important in this work. And so I'm just trying to capture that in this moment.
0: Oh, that's amazing work. So, you know, I shared, you know, a little bit and I'll and when I go back and when people really listen to it, when they listen to the whole episode, you know, I'll talk about some some data around um, the disproportion, disproportionate disciplining of Black girls. Mm-hmm. And I think you really mm-hmm. feel like the root of maybe why this is over, over disciplining and over right. policing, right? This adultification. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, that adultification of Black girls and that intersectionality.
1: That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we know that um, Black girls are five times more likely to be disciplined um, for minor. For minor infractions, right they're twice as likely to, to to be suspended, and this is pretty much just about how black girls show up in this space. I've heard stories from um some of the participants in my study basically stating that when they came in and they you know were dressed a certain way, that it was maybe that security guard or that administrator following them around the building um that they were often treated very harshly and different than their white peers. Um, And so when we talk about adultification, there is some research literature that shows that Black girls are more likely to be viewed older than what they typically are. They're viewed as sassy. They're viewed as problem solvers, to be mediators between teachers and their peers. And so it's almost, you know, it almost replicates this idea when we look at the way in which Black women are expected to be in organizations, um, and and some of that research when we look at it from an intersectional lens shows that Black women, um, older Black, you know, Black women, not necessarily girls, but Black women in these spaces are likely to be the um, the fixer, the Olivia Pope, or the Omarosa. Um, and, and in these spaces with Black girls, when we focus on Black girlhood, Black girls are getting those same type of messages. Around you know being this mediator and uh, being viewed much older than what they typically are, and it's really unfortunate because this impacts their learning and their well-being.
0: So, can you talk a little bit more about that, Dr. Sharita, about that impact on learning and well-being? How that how that's showing up for
1: um, in in these young girls' lives? Yeah, absolutely, and so. We know that if a school system, for example, if not necessarily a school system, but um, what I mean is a school setting, that classroom setting, if it's not promoting or doesn't have a healthy school climate, meaning not only for academic, not only for academics, but if it's not also racially healthy in that context, that damages Black girls' learning and their well-being. And in some of my work, I found that if teachers are very supportive. They're affirming and Black girls' identity within that space, if Black girls feel like they have a sense of belonging. And what's interesting about this is that this cuts across the um, different sort of context that Black girls are in, meaning this can be in a racially, ethnically diverse setting, predominantly Black setting, predominantly white setting. If Black girls feel as if they belong, if they are valued, if their voice is heard, this increases their um, how they view themselves. They have more racial pride. They have higher rates of academic curiosity, and they also feel like they belong. And so, it's something that's very important for us to do to ensure that the environments, particularly school systems that serve our Black girls, are really making sure that we we are affirming their identities and not sort of comparing them um, to this white femininity lens. Because what often happens is that when we bring up the issues of Black girls, they're often compared to Black boys, or they're compared to white girls. And so they sort of fall um, within this idea of being invisible. And so it's important that we center Black girls' voices in these spaces that just sort of allows for them to be, you know, healthy learners, right? Um, So they can make a contribution to society, so they can be more civically engaged, and most importantly, so they can love themselves. And I think affirmation is an important part of that.
0: Now, some of your work when um, we talked earlier, you work you do work with um teachers, you do professional development absolutely, and are you finding any trends, especially given you know the experiences um last year with the protest after George Floyd's death, the call for social justice, racial justice equity um that schools are looking to to make some changes or make improvements regarding
1: this area? absolutely, I think that there are definitely so through this work i Um, work in various types of school districts, right? And so some of these schools have a different racial-ethnic composition. Um, And so within those school districts, it it can be challenging in some school districts that never had to sort of do this self-reflection until these moments happen, right? Um, As opposed to when you talk to their adolescents, when kids within that setting, they sort of can tell you that these things have been happening, And so I guess the answer to that question, I guess, you know, just being transparent is that some environments are more receptive to that work, while some are still trying to do this work and sort of understanding what is going on in real time. And so it's definitely been an eye opener. Um, Teachers have been wanting this information, but not necessarily knowing what to do about it. you know, sometimes there's resistance to talk about social justice issues and bring them into the classroom. But again, if we sort of center around what a healthy school climate looks like, part of that is affirmation of who's in your classroom. And so that's primarily what this work have looked like. It's been definitely positive. But again, because people come from, you know, have their own lived experiences, come from all of these different um, walks of life. Um, sometimes that work can be challenging if you've never had had to um, experience it, or you've never been called out in terms of addressing it.
0: Yeah, and I can—I mean, I can definitely see that because I mean, I have the lens of being a mom of two black two black sons.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, historically, I think in, in in things I've read and even my own personal experiences, right? I think I was ignorant to—I was really ignorant to the fact that there was such a. Um, such a such a such an area of concern, right? Over policing mm-hmm. and over disciplining of black girls, right? Because you hear so much information about black boys, right? That's right. Yeah. So it's kind of like, well, you don't you don't hear about it, so it's not a problem. That's right. So how how have you addressed that in your research and also in your profession to make sure that this this issue really is brought to the center so that it can be addressed?
1: Absolutely. And I think that's a great question. And so one of the things that I just want to make clear is that, you know, when we do this work through my own lens, I've been saying that we have to get rid of our language, which a lot of us scholars have is this idea of, you know, we want to do the oppression Olympics. You know, who has it the worst? Is it Black boys or Black girls? And I think that's the wrong lens that, you know, we are using to really assist both populations. I think that Black boys have unique racialized and gendered experiences. And I think Black girls definitely do. And a lot of the invisibility of Black girls is really coming from, you know, and it really stems from Kimberly Crenshaw's work when she talked about, you know, intersectionality and the fact that in some, you know, from the legal studies in, in, in some ways where if Black women experience harassment or discrimination at their place of employment, they were sort of, they had to choose either the race or gender piece. Right. But, they, you know, it couldn't be both. And I think more recently we're starting to see. And what I tell folks is that, um, you know, black women compromise these two identities, marginalized and oppressed. So that makes these experiences unique. And this also translates to what's happening to black girls within this setting. And also, I think it's room for both we can study Black boys and be affirming of their identities and be, you know, acknowledging their own racialized and gendered experiences. But I think we can also do the same thing for Black girls. But we lose that when we do the comparison. And I like to call it the um, oppression Olympics when we try to, you know, put folks, you know, put these populations against each other to try to see who has it the worst. I think that's the wrong lens for us to have. But, but, but I am very... Excited and encouraged and motivated that there is an increase of, you know, in in, in terms of visibility for Black girls, that we're now starting to talk about Black girlhood and Black girls owning their own voices and defining who they are. And we're really making contributions, particularly in my area, um, developmental science, that we're now starting to understand how context, how family, how peers, how school settings shape black girls development by also making sure that we allow them to define who they are oh that's amazing
0: Mm -hmm. now you're you're also a mom right you're a mom of girls of two girls yeah how does you know again i think it's kind of hard sometimes i think to leave work at home or leave work at work right it's an and not bring it home, especially when yes. they center around children, center around um, you know being parents, right, of of kids of, of black children. That's right. So, so now how how has how has your role as a parent either influenced your work or vice versa, your work influencing your parenting?
1: Absolutely. I think that's, again, wonderful questions. Um, So one of the things, though, that I even had to do some self-reflection on is the way in which my black girlhood was. Right. And so what I mean by that is that through my K through 12 experience, I am from Detroit. Detroit is a very hyper segregated city and our schools were a reflection of it. And so in terms of the affirmation of my identity and who I was with the, you know, with the help of my parents, and the village and the kinship and it's you know the extended family and those within the school settings, my identity was always affirmed. And it's not until I had daughters that they're in spaces that are academically different, meaning that they're they they are in spaces where the um racial and ethnic diversity looks very different in their schools and they're and they not and they don't necessarily get those messaging around who they are and how beautiful they are and how wanted they are and how smart they are. Because these are predominantly white schools that are, that are um, high performing schools in the city, but the context is particularly different. And so one of the ways that I had to challenge myself is that number one um, in my work is that black girls are not a monolith group. Black girls have different racialized experiences, right? Um, You have Black girls that grew up in rural settings, suburban settings, urban settings. We have Black girls that attend private or public or charter schools um, that are in schools that are racially and ethnically diverse, socioeconomically diverse. And so even having these conversations with my daughters, um, being um, one of the only friends at the party that has to wear a bonnet, right, when she um has a sleepover and all the questions that she gets from that, that was not an experience that I had. And so with my own work, I am beginning to reimagine Black girlhood, but also recognizing the different lived experiences and the beauty, right? And the depth of what Black girlhood looks like. With my own daughter sort of telling their stories. So that's been that's been amazing. I don't think they would say that, but <laughs> <laughs>
0: So I think you know. Hopefully, as as they get older, right, everything you know, we kind of look yeah. back, right, on our childhood, and then really, really either understand the gift it was, right, absolutely, what you can take from it, you know, to help to help your,
1: yeah, because it, you know, it's interesting because it really wasn't until I watched um, Amanda Seals HBO um, stand-up comedy special that she was talking about her experiences attending a predominantly white school. With her friends, and how she sort of always was expected to be the person that always dressed best, that always had the flyest hairstyle, that could rap or dance automatically because she was Black. And so, at that moment, the next day, I had a conversation with my daughters, and they were like, Yes, that happens all the time. And I was like, Wow, like I've never had to sort of deal with that. And so, you know we're like working through it. I'm learning, but they definitely have, um, sort of sharpened my lens and how I define and look at what black girlhood is.
0: And I think, I mean, I think that's, I I think that's so, um, so important, right. Understanding how our children interpret the world Mm -hmm. that they, and the, like you said, everything is contextual, right. We talk about intersectionality. We also talk about context.
1: That's right.
0: But what, but you know, it seems like the, where the dots really connect, right. Is how, how they're socialized or racialized in these settings, right. Educational settings.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: And in the broader world. And i and, and I talked with you earlier, Dr. I'm going to speak with Dr. Valerie Adams mass a little bit more about Mm -hmm. how media, right. How that plays, right. These
1: absolutely.
0: How, how, how media has really played into how, um, black girls
1: are racialized um in these settings. And let me just and can I just add one more thing? I just want to talk about the importance of and so based on those conversations, it not only sort of shaped my research, but it also made me be more intentional as a parent. And so because I knew that this school wasn't affirming their identity in a way that it should have been, I sought out programs within the community that did that to make sure that they were, you know, being very intentional about being in Black girls' space. And so that's some of the things that I've also did, too, to sort of make sure that they have that, because that's something that I've always had. And so that also sort of, so I just wanted to say it was just not only the research, but it was also like um, a, a, a personal, um, it's something that I did personally for them.
2: Yeah. And I think, and
0: you know, when you, you talked about your experiences growing up in Detroit, so I grew up in Washington, D.C. Oh,
1: okay.
0: I, mean, <laughs> I went to went to public schools, you know, predominantly black public schools had had teachers um, that were black. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, for probably for a myriad of reasons. Right. I don't think I had this um, had the experiences that a lot of a lot of young girls are having nowadays. Right. I think that's right. Well, also, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. Right. So I think that the whole idea of um, black love and you know, it mm-hmm. in black race. So there was already this affirmation. My my pa- my dad went to Howard University. Sure, yeah, black power, and so so it was different. I think now though, I think it. I mean, it does exist, but for a lot of kids, I think there's. Yeah, it's just it's just a different time. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a different time.
0: It's so different, and even for even for young girls of color of black girls who are going to even predominantly black schools, there's there's this dynamic, right? There one, there are not as many black educators, right? So it's rare that's to right a teacher that's going to look like you. That's right. And I don't know if in your research if that plays a role as well, right? This whole idea of is this over disciplining also related to um the paucity, right? This 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 less this le- less likelihood of having a a teacher, a Black teacher?
1: I think so. I think, you know, nationally, 80% of teachers are white, and I can speak, are are, are white female teachers. And I think also, you know, I can speak for Missouri, you know, we're up over 90% of majority of the teachers. And I think that that's one of the reasons. Um, And also what some of the research shows is that, you know, Black teachers are not only beneficial for Black students, But having racially and ethnically diverse teachers benefits everybody because of the lived experience and and, and the opportunity to learn different things. And so I definitely see that show up. And most importantly, I've seen it in my own work where, you know, the counselor, you know, Black girls are even talking about if they wish that they had a counselor that sort of knew their own lived experience, um, that was a person of their racial ethnic group, Right that they felt like could sort of really understand Black girlhood and what was going on. Or the fact that teachers might say insensitive things without sort of acknowledging their existence. And so what you talk about, I guess the question you ask really hits on in 2021, what Black girls are talking about, right? They, it's the importance of having someone that looks like them That can affirm them in these spaces. And this is not only the teachers, but they're requesting this of counselors, of administrators, even of programs, um, after school programs that serve them. Um, And one of the things that you brought up, I think you were this idea of media, which Dr. Adams Bass would talk about, but a lot of our socialization and messaging about what we think about Black women and girls are is through social media. And so I also think that we're contending with another socialization mechanism, which is also sort of feeding into the way that white teachers are perceiving black girls in context, the way that people are sort of loading up black girls with these stereotypes. I think media has a lot to do with that as well.
0: Yeah, and I and again, you know, what during the research for for this episode just kind of seeing so like some of the lines again connecting dots right so if there's this this assumption or stereotype or generalization right because of a teachers you know maybe not, lack of you know lived experiences right you know mm-hmm. working with mm-hmm. black children or the experiences with black children or black culture poten- potentially right so then you have this you have this lens based on your view of only seeing the black experience through a media lens. Yes, right. And then a young lady acts a certain way and then, you know, you jump to making assumptions, right? The teacher may may jump to making assumptions. And then, you know, calling in either that child is either then sent to the principal's office mm-hmm. or the police, you know, and that's a whole other 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 issue, right? <laughs> right. Right.
1: Right.
0: Um, resource officers in school which which can compound an already um, you
1: know racial yeah it just makes it worse you know it just it makes it worse and you know one of the things in this work is that and I don't know if you know we, I think we were going to get to this is you know people have to you know our educators our 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 teachers our staff these school resource officers we really have to be have to go through some intense training and some self reflection about. What they think about groups, how they're socialized, like what are their, because a lot of these biases and stereotypes contributes to the action, to the disciplinary infractions that Black girls receive, how they're perceived in the environment and how they're treated. And so a lot of work we also have to do with the adults and the service providers who are there to meet the needs of all students. But somehow they're not meeting the needs of all students.
0: See, and I think again, yeah, I love having having you as a guest, right? Because um, you're like really deep, and I'm like learning so much. And again, it, and just processing everything um, you're saying, right? This is, you know, this is really why systemic racism mm-hmm. and in, institutional racism really does hurt everybody, right? Because right. not right. Does it hurt kids of color? It hurts, you know, white educators, white people as well, because if again, you, yeah. So how we interact with each other is really based on how these systems
1: are designed and we need to dismantle these systems. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because people come with different lived experiences, right? And this is not to say that, you know, we're going to blame white teachers, but it is to say that we have to hold white teachers and people who service our children accountable. That means that, You have to take account for your own lived experiences. You have to do some self-reflection. You know, how were you introduced to race and ethnicity to people that look different than you? What mechanism has that been through? Right. How were you socialized? What you know, where are you getting your information from that informs you? And how does or does, you know, does that sort of feed into the work that you do every single day with our kids? And so we have to start there as well, because I think that's where a lot of the disconnection is at. And so when I go out to these school districts, I mean, you know, you have people well into their 40s or 50s who've never been challenged to sort of see outside their own lens, because some of them have grew up in that neighborhood, they went to that high school, and they came back and now they're teachers or administrators in that same sterile white setting. And so if your only exposure is kids through a desegregation program and what you've typically heard, then you're going to treat those students a certain way. So it really is about this, this, this idea of how we're um socialized. Does that make sense? Yes, it totally makes sense. Okay. Okay.
0: So in your research, what ways have you found that really would help address? Um, the the issue of over-policing, over-disciplining of Black girls in schools?
1: You know, one of the things I think is that we need to center Black voices. Um, We need to center Black girls' voices. And what does that mean? You know, we use a, numbers are great. Numbers are great because we can see the disparities that exist. Like we know that um, Black girls are five times more likely to be disciplined um I'm twice as likely to be suspended, but I also think we have to do and engage in some narrative, some storytelling, allowing Black girls to sort of name and define what their experiences is like every day in a particular context. I also think we need to view it from a strength-based lens. Some of the work, you know, more recently we become, um, you know, we're using a strength-based lens but some of the work with Black girls have been viewed from a culture deficit perspective. Um, me, you know, meaning that you know, we're, we're, we're just focusing on pregnancy rates. We're focusing on um, you know, um, obesity. Not to say none of those things are, are, are not important. I'm not saying they're not important, but I'm saying that if we don't do the work as practitioners or scholars and, and sort of doing this self-reflection then the work that we're going to put out is going to tell this sort of um, cultural deficit narrative. So I think a strength-based lens, centering Black girls' voices, and we u- need to use methods that honor Black girls' lived experiences. And so what I mean by that is, you know, what theory, and I'm speaking for the social scientists or even educators, what are we using to explain a phenomenon of development? Are we using a one-size-fits-all model that isn't intersectional, that doesn't really, you know, it, it, it look at the um, the effects of race and gender and class, right? And so that's important as well, too. And also the fact that Black girls are not monolith. So there is diversity in socioeconomic status. There's diversity in the school settings, um, the neighborhood settings that Black girls attend. And so I think if we start there, and I know that that's a lot, but that's just typically I think how we can sort of, typically what I see in this work, but also I think how we can sort of continue to make sure that we are allowing Black girls to define and name their own reality. So centering Black girls' voices, viewing from a strength-based lens, and really looking at the research and asking ourselves, are our methods and frameworks honoring Black girls' voices and lived experiences? I think that's a start. Oh, I think that's a wonderful
0: start. And before before we end our conversation today, I'm asking all my guests this year, for you know, for this particular season, to think about how can we reimagine, right? Given the COVID era we've gone through, um mm-hmm. yeah. you know, fight for racial justice, social justice, what are your thoughts about what are the opportunities? How would how would you reimagine how we can better support black
1: girls? Yeah, great question. And so, one of the things I think is that we have to get out the four walls of the academy. And what I mean by that is that we have to um, communicate our work to non academic audiences, those persons that are on the ground and that serve our Black girls. This is practitioners, social workers, counselors, um, principals, school districts. We need to offer, you know, translate our research to practice. Um, We need to talk about professional development. Um, And we also need to collaborate with organizations as well. One of the organizations that service girls that I can think of right now is Girls Inc. They're very important. They're, They're important to the community, but they're very intentional about creating Black girls space and honoring their voices. And so I think that if you are a scholar that's engaged in this work, it is very important. It is imperative that you partner with organizations that are on the ground working with our girls, communicating to non-academic audience, those persons who, who service our population. I think it's so imperative, and it really will help us reimagine how we can better support black girls because you know we have the literature, we have the findings, We also have Black girls' voices. We also know what practitioners are doing with our information. And we can also learn from our community organizations as well about what works and what doesn't work. But I think it's got to be a team effort. You know, it, it, it has to be the village. And I think that if we can do, you know, incorporate these pieces, I think that's how we can better support Black girls. Thank
0: you so much, Dr. Butler-Barnes. This has been a wonderful conversation.
1: I know. Thank you so much. I'm so, anytime it's a conversation around Black girls, I am ready. Yeah, this was was amazing. This was amazing. Thank you again for having me.
0: Next, we continue the conversation with Dr. Valerie Adams-Bass. Great, so I spoke with Dr. Sharita Butler Barnes on the topic of over-disciplining and over-policing of black girls. And in our conversation, you know, I mentioned that I was also going to speak to, to you, another, you know, renowned expert, about how really media, right, and media portrayals um, impact um, how girls are over-police and over-disciplined. And I love the question that you posed um, pre-interview. How do the identities of Black girls get policed? And so, I want to get your response, uh, also the response based on
2: the research that you've that you've done um, in this area. Absolutely. So, again, Jackie, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and be a part of this conversation, an important conversation um, to have, particularly thinking about media, because so often we are aware that it's here. It's is its presence but we don't really consider the implications until we see some non-fictional assaults that occur right and then we start to think about the trauma associated with seeing people you know assaulted and killed and murdered by police women girls children so that was probably a little bit heavy to start out with but i just want to contextualize that media you know is here especially visual media you know so when we're thinking about visual visual media in the images of Black women, um, those images are really what shape how people perceive and come to understand Black girls, unfortunately. So, you know, oftentimes in the literature um, where we are speaking about the experiences of Black girls, we talk about the adultification of Black girls, right? So oftentimes that adultification comes from the images that people see televised images or visual images of of women, most often Black women. And then those images are used to interpret the behaviors and uh, expressions of Black girls, which is unfortunate. So you do have not just the adultification because of the need to socialize girls who you know, racially socialized girls and prepare them to navigate racial structures and systems. But the adultification, because oftentimes these media images, which often reflect or project negative media stereotypes about Black women, are the images that people use to make meaning and understand Black girls.
0: So based on your research, right, how do we make that leap, right? how How is that leap for how from how we perceive or how Black girls are perceived in the media how does that then translate or or end up right where they're over black girls are over and
2: over disciplined? Oh, yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it's a leap that we are sometimes unconscious of. So, of course, there's the Harvard implicit bias test and other tests that look at racial bias, skin color bias, gender bias, etc. But I do think that for some, when it comes to media, particularly um media of Black people, Black women and Black girls, it's its not even a conscious decision. Um, I would say I would love to see like a media-based <laughs> bias test come out. Maybe I'll do that in my next uh, phase of my career. But I say that because, for example, I was uh, talking with uh, a young lady and She was speaking about how, when I used to do applied work and work in the field, about how her teachers responded to her based on what they are seeing in pop culture. And what we know, the leap comes from pop culture often um, romanticizes, if you will, as as well as... uh, makes extreme images of Black women, right? And they're usually these sapphire images, which now the term is ratchet, right? And depending on who you speak to about these terms, so a sassy Black woman who talks loud, who is demoralizing to Black men, who is just disrespectful of others, right? So that's sort of this, this historical sapphire image. So then you fast forward today to ratchet or ratchetness, and while some say, you know, we have come to accept that term and turn it on its head and make it something it isn't, really when you have people who don't have that cultural context, often white educators or white therapists and doctors, and all that they see is these images projected that are, you know, Black women being loud, Black women being rude, Black women fighting with one another, particularly when we're talking about reality television then what you find is that 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 perception is then, you know, Black girls are thought about in that way, right? As well as, so it's not just that we're thinking about or people are thinking about Black women. So there's a need to suppress their voice, right? And to control their bodies. And if we think about that historically, we can think about slavery as a place where Black women's bodies were, right, suppressed, and also exploited. And so it's a long legacy. And that legacy really does continue when we look at how media images, the media images that are celebrated and receive the most marketing and support in the industry.
0: Yeah, I mean, the more, you know, again, the more that the more that you're you're speaking to this issue, I mean, everything sort of is like, you know, is the dots are connected, and you know, as I discussed before, you know there there's plenty of data and, and anecdotes about experiences of Black girls. Um, in our media, right? We we've seen images of them being being policed, right? Yeah, absolutely, or over disciplined. And this idea of this cultural competency of our educators, and even our, like you said, the other systems, the the judicial system, criminal justice system. And, you know, it makes me wonder, it's like, you know, should that be, you know, a standard, right? That we, they really, that there really is this cultural competency, it's not just an implicit bias course, but an understanding. And then, and then I think about like, you know, how complex that is, right? Is that, is that cultural competency really a, a class that says, you know, forget about everything you've seen on television, Right. Or your one interaction with that, you know, that one person um, so that you have to be untaught all these all these negative um, stereotypes.
2: Yeah. You know, I think there are a couple of things to be said. This is such a big topic and, and it may sound like a leap or a jump. So I do want to share some share a few things. So, you know, a few things to to share and to think about as it relates to you know, the policing of Black women and Black girls, which is the topic of this. And so how then they are suspended and and literally policed and become part of the adjudication system or juvenile justice system. You want to think about, you know, really this, the beauty ideals, right? So beauty ideals, American beauty ideals have really been based on meekness and white women. White women and meekness. And, 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 and that has been the standard of beauty and the ideal. It isn't until more recently, and I talk about this in a couple of my chapters, it isn't until more recently where you began to um, see more Rubenesque, if you will, white women in television shows celebrated as musical artists. Prior to that, you didn't really see that phenotypic diversity among white women. And that has been the ideal in media. So the alternative or alternate for Black women, it's much more diverse. It's phenotypically diverse. If you think about sitcoms, um, you know maybe the characterizations aren't diverse. So you might see, you know, um, a mammy. You might see a sapphire, but it's phenotypically diverse. There's usually someone who's overweight or or what we might consider obese or chubby. Um, There's slim. They're all different kinds of body types of. Black women in televised media and and uh, and dramas and movies, big screen movies, what used to be big screen before COVID nineteen, and also as as musical artist, right? So you do get an opportunity to see this phenotypic variety. And what my research has shown, and one of the the projects that I'm I'm working on now, we've seen that black girls tend to have, and other research researchers' work has shown this, black girls tend to have a higher self-esteem, and a higher self-concept than all of their other peers. So compared to white teen and young adult girls, compared to Latino, Latinx, younger girls, and adolescents, compared to Asian American, compared to all other ethnic groups, these girls tend to um, have higher self-concept and self-esteem. And and in my early study, and one of the things we're digging back into now is the focus groups. We saw that, you know, these girls tended to prefer televised media or visual media images that represented or showed diverse representations of Black girls. So when you're talking about like this alt- alternate image and undoing and learning, Black girls do get that. Right. And then the racial socialization messages that are communicated to them about their beauty from both their mothers and their fathers also play a part in um, that idea of, you know, self-concept and, and, and beauty, what the ideal beauty is. Um, I would be remiss not to talk about and um, have a chapter coming out, really another media chapter coming out that's geared toward white women who teach black girls, right, um, teaching beautiful brilliant black girls. And in that chapter, that's the name of the text. And in that chapter, you know, one of the things I talk about is, you know, the chapter is a matter of media, cultural appropriation and expectations of black girls. So what, what I do talk about in relation to beauty in that chapter is that right now in this cultural moment, what we're finding is that those aesthetics that were historically preferred within the black, community are now really being commodified by non-Black women like the Kardashians, right? So whereas before having, you know, large hips, having full lips was considered non-attractive in mainstream communities, now you find that there are non-White women commodifying that aesthetic that was before a preferred aesthetic that was celebrated within the Black community
0: yeah i can i can definitely i can definitely see that and I love how you know your work is really again you you know you're translating your research into into things that are practical for educators and I hope that you know many more educators will have the opportunity to read that information and again as part of this continued journey about how do we look at implicit bias and how does it form right and i think what's even even more striking is you know when we talk about racism you know impacting communities of color i think these are these are examples of how racism impacts everyone right because if the white if the norm is meek blonde white and you don't fit that mold then that just perverts everything right it perverts ideals about who you are as a white person and your ideals of what you know, people of color, like, and then, and the same thing for for people of color, right? The the ideals get perverted because of this white normative, quote unquote,
2: ideal. Absolutely. And it really, absolutely. And it's hurting everybody. <laughs> it is. And, I, and that's a nervous chuckle, not a joyous chuckle. And I say that for a few reasons. One, you know, this commodification of, of Black body aesthetics is celebrated among white women but not necessarily celebrated among black women and when we're talking about black girls if we want to go back to the everyday black girl when black girls hit puberty prior to puberty they're probably about the roughly the same bmi you know growing at the same rate as non-black girls but once they hit puberty they actually have a heavier bone density their, their bodies tend to mature more quickly and so going back to my early statement of you know seeing visual images of Black women behaving and looking in a particular way. When you see a, a a maturing Black girl who has a body that's growing into a woman and more woman that's more mature than you would expect for her age, people respond to her. You know, that way, teachers are going to respond to her as if she's more mature because physically she may be more mature, uh, but not necessarily emotionally. And so they're going to respond to her in that way. And even Often, you know, girls will speak about also navigating, you know, relationships as their body bodies begin to mature during puberty, navigating relationships and people, you know, impressing upon them, you know, this adultification because they're beginning to mature. Males are impressing upon her when we're talking about heterosexual attractiveness or ideals, if you will. So, you know, although these are adolescent girls and young adult girls, people are responding to them as if they're for full grown adults. Right. Also, you know, there there's this idea that, you know, when we're thinking about, as you said, this ideal of meekness and being quiet. Culturally, this is where context matters. We're not necessarily quiet. Right. We are an expressive people. When you think about, you know, the verve, how we speak, how we communicate, how we walk, that is within the black community. While there's diversity. We generally are expressive people. And Black women tend to be expressive. So Black girls are expressive, right? So if we think about, you know, Bandora's social learning theory, Black girls are going to learn from the Black women whom they are modeling and see. So if they see Black women talking among each other and having a good time and speaking out, then that too will become a habit for them. But if the expectation is that girls are going to be more quiet Right. And that they are not going to speak out or speak loud or speak out of turn. Then when they're in school spaces or even having encounters with um, law enforcement officials or officers, the idea that they're going to speak out, speak up, speak back. Is becomes punitive, right? They're punished mm-hmm. for using their voice in a way that is not to be expected of any woman, but particularly not favored from Black women and girls, right? So if the beauty ideal is meek, quiet, diminutive and Black girls, while some may be that way, but many are going to speak out on behalf of themselves and others, then they are going to unfortunately be punished in that way. Right. And so even if you think about going back to media content, sitcoms, you think about, you know, what images come to your mind when you think about these shows that are now in syndication. When you think about, you know, the characters who played on Moesha, right. When you think about the characters who play on one on one, when you think about, you know, the young adult women who play on half and half, all of these shows that are in syndication. So even this younger generation are now seeing these syndicated images of black girls, right? Black adolescent girls, black young adult girls. So, you know, it's not just that the black viewers are seeing this, but non-black viewers are watching these shows too. And if they don't live in a multicultural environment, if they don't work or attend schools or work at schools where there's a diverse workforce as well as student population, then that is where they're getting their cues. They're learning about black people if you will, in Blackness, which we know that Blackness is not, there's not one way to be Black, or should I say people should know that there's not one way to be Black, um, then, you know, that is what they're going to respond to, right? That's what those teachers, that's what those officers, that's what they're going to respond to. And so it's important to consider how we have conversations around what we are seeing, what we are visualizing, or what we are celebrating in the media,
0: so I wanted to, to circle back on a couple of couple of points that there that there's this intersection for black girls not only because they are black, right their racial identity but also their gender mm-hmm. and I wanted to see if you could talk a little bit more about that intersection, and even in some places you know reading you know reading your work, even ethnicity right because Again, there's no way to be black, so you can you can identify as as black in the United States, but be from the Caribbean or be from um, African countries or European
2: European country. Mm -hmm. And you could also, you know, and then and also you could be biracial, right? Correct. Right. So these identities carry with them cultural context and how we interpret womanhood and expressiveness. And so I think, you know, and, and how we respect and honor women. That's the other thing. You know, these identities come with an understanding of women's place in society and how we honor and respect women and how we honor and respect girls or not, right? So I think about we were recently doing a research project um, you know, the changing face of race, looking at the experience of Black immigrant students. So whether they were first and second generation from, as you said, an African country, a European or a Caribbean country. And, you know, there was one young lady from an African country who was part of our study who spoke about how in school for her, you know, adjusting to public education in America meant that there was more discussion and autonomy around her gendered identity than it would be at home, which was an interesting perspective in that and what she meant by that she gave examples in that in, in health classes and physical education classes, they had sexual education classes, and they talked about you know girls' rights and women's rights, where ordinarily, where she the country she had come from, there was no discussion or expectation of rights for women and girls, right? So that's a very different experience than a Black girl who has been raised in the United States, multi-generation, who's had to navigate racialized experiences, who has seen her mothers and her aunties and her grandmothers navigating racialized experiences that are associated with her gender or associated with her physique, right? So the clothes that she may choose to wear to work or the way she, you know, she styles her hair, you know, there is, that's a very different conversation, right? Because those girls have had to see their mothers and other women and extended family navigate spaces where their physical selves were either intimidating or different. And so work to either celebrate that in spite of or work to adjust, right, and adopt mainstream um, presentations so that they could be successful in their workplace or so that they could be successful as they move through academic arenas.
0: Oh man. Yeah. So it's, it's very complicated.
2: <laughs> it, it gets very complicated. And I think, you know, that Lauren Mims, who's a a, a a burgeoning scholar and does all of her work with girls. I work with girls and, and boys. I don't, I don't, you know, I work with both, but you know, her study, one of the things she talks about, again, going back to this idea, even for black girls, when she was, you know, working with them, one of her more recent publications, one of the things she mentions is that, you know, these girls relate to black female artists as models for motivation, coping, and navigation. Again, so they're looking at black adult women as models and motivation. And I think part of that is the limited number of black female youth, adolescents, or young adults that we see in the media um, or and or that are celebrated. Um, and so they are going to look to black women, the black women that they know, and then the black women that are celebrated in the media. So you're going to see Black girls look to Beyonce, right? You're going to see black girls look to now Megan Thee Stallion. You're going to see Black girls look to these kinds of artists because these are the kind of artists that are celebrated in the, and, and in this current time in spite of some of the racialized context and extreme experiences that we've been having more recently, these artists are have become crossover artists, right? So whereas before they may have been a genre relegated to a Black listening audience or Black viewing audience, they are crossover artists and Are commodified in a way that non-black viewers and consumers are paying attention to their music, paying attention to their looks, and they're engaging with them in that way. So if that's what you know of a black woman or black girl. Then you're going to engage with those those students in your in your classroom that way, which isn't. And then you know we know that there are those who don't favor the what you know uh, uh, Megan Thee Stallion represents. We know that there are those who don't favor what a Nicki Minaj represents, but you know, either way, we and young girls have to navigate those relationships. So that's, that's really important um, to, to think about and to consider. And one of the things that I want to press upon is that media socialization is not a new term, it's not a new definition, but we hadn't really been thinking about it very much until we started to see this explosion of social media. But we've got to really think about media as a socializing agent. And, and that it independently can stand on its own to teach people, if you will, not just the young people, but the adults who work with them about another group or culture. But when you're leaning on media so much, there's no context.
0: Whoa.
2: Right. There's no context for, you know, why Megan the Stallion is Megan the Stallion. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no context. So what's your understanding and interpretation of a stallion? is probably not the understanding and interpretation that that within group has, right? So that is an appreciated term. But if you have a different perspective, you may be interpreting that differently. So we have to think about the context that's absent from the celebration of these these images. And then what does that mean when you're using that as a reference for managing policing? What does that mean? So when we're talking about Black girls and their bodies, and we have non-Black viewers or listeners paying attention to Black artists that are celebrating and have made crossover status, such as a Megan Thee Stallion, what does it mean when that becomes the reference for managing, communicating, and developing relationships or controlling and policing Black girls?
0: So based on... All your research and experience, right? So, my question about you know reimagining, right? So, how how would you reimagine, right, a better way to support, affirm, and protect Black girls?
2: Critical media literacy, <laughs> and I know that was a, almost an alliteration. So, I want to say, if I want to use an example and talk about that. So, at one point, I was working with a Children's Defense Fund Freedom School with a non-Black colleague who was serving as a, we were serving as co coordinators. And this is really important about the messaging that comes from external groups, as I was just describing, but also within group. So every year, there's a part of that program is an end of year celebration. And this is a long way of getting to your answer, but I'm a, I'm going to tell a story which is part of the Black American or even African di- tradition. So, it was time for us to choose a song. This was an elementary school, right? Elementary school, kindergarten through sixth grade, Freedom School summer program. And the co-coordinator, beautiful voice, very pretty voice, sang. Had been working in the community, you know, perceived that she knew more about this community um, than I did. This was a working class to 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 lower class community of black children and families, and you know, she had been working there longer and knew more than I did. Okay, great. So she wants to sing R. Kelly, I Believe I Can Fly. And I talk about this in the chapter that I mentioned that's coming up in in Teaching Brilliant, Beautiful Black Girls. And I said, no. We argued, you know, not in front of the young people, but we really disagreed about singing I Believe I Can Fly. She really wanted to sing I Believe I Can Fly and have the young people sing I Believe I Can Fly. Could fly. There were just as many girls as boys in this program. I would say we were almost 50 50 or 47 53, which is pretty good for an out of school time program in the community. I was very adamant that we don't sing I Believe I Can Fly, and she couldn't accept me and trust my internal knowledge, right? This context that matters. So I took some time to explain to her that at the time he was being investigated for know sexual relationships with underage girls and i did not think that that was a good model for us to encourage black young girls and boys to sing the song what message were we communicating by celebrating this artist who was under investigation for improper sexual misconduct with underage girls she still wanted to sing the song beautiful song motivational that doesn't matter right so this is that context part And that devaluing of the experiences of Black girls and how when we celebrate others at their expense, it can have damage. And so I, you know, we didn't sing the song. (laughs) We didn't agree. You know, we we got through the rest of the summer, you know, um, and we're respectful of one another, but we didn't sing the song. And then I think about, you know, and then fast forward and here now with the Me Too movement, R. Kelly is persecuted, prosecuted, Stories are coming out. People are coming to the table saying exactly what happened. So imagine if we had those young girls sing that song. So within the community, before his experience was mainstream, we knew that R. Kelly was being being investigated, but she didn't. And even informing her that this could be a problem and we should avoid it for the sake of the girls and boys in the program, it was dismissed, right? So even when we're thinking about you know, music and what can we do? My, my point is we have to do our homework and we have to be critical media consumers. So critical media consumers mean we understand and we are critical of the media that we're consuming and we start to dig beneath the surface to figure out who is producing who is consuming, what kind of conversations can we have with the students in our classroom to be reflective, which is why I love the Strong Black Girls book as well, where we have these reflective questions, you know, to be aware of when I watch this music video, when I watch this movie, how does that relate to my perceptions or understanding of black girls? Are there there alternatives? And even, you know, the idea, I talked about this frequently um, The last day of class, last fall, we were all tired. My Monday night's class was always tired, even at the beginning of Monday. You know, so I always say, how was your weekend? How are you doing? How are you feeling today? Especially during COVID-19. I said, what did you do this weekend? So I said, well, did anyone see, you know, Megan Thee Stallion on the the music awards? Everybody's face lit up. Everyone started singing, you know, hey, we're ready then you know, like, okay, I'm shaking out of my tiredness, my fatigue. I just, you know, they were happy and were commenting on Megan and what it meant to have her sing that song and what it meant to see dark skinned black girls dancing and this platform. It was an interesting, just how are you doing? Did you see Megan Thee Stallion, right? So if you're talking with younger girls, high school or middle school age, girls who are also most likely see Megan Thee Stallion listening to the uncut version. They've heard WAP. You know, they've heard it all. They've heard body They've heard all of them. Uh, how can you have a conversation with them, a both-and conversation? And that requires you to be more literate consumers, to learn more about the artists that you're celebrating or choosing to connect with your students. Because it is a good way to connect with your students when you understand what they're watching, reading, listening to, what social media platforms they're using the most. And what's trending? That's a very good thing. But can you go beneath the superficial surface, surface, right? This idea of, you know, the commod- commodified black identity that we're seeing in these, in these visual spaces and have a deeper conversation. And that's going to require that you be a critical consumer of media. You know, it doesn't mean that you stop connecting. What it means is that when you do connect, that you're going to, um, be able to have a conversation about body positivity, but also about how you know certain parts of the body are celebrated or not, right? And what does that mean for you if you have a similar physique and people respond to you in a particular way Are the things that you can say or do to cope with people who respond to you in a particular way? So critical media literacy is an important part of that. And when we think about racialized, I like to call it racial media literacy um, because... Oftentimes, you know, while you may be celebrating or within group may be celebrating a Megan Thee Stallion or another artist or Nicki Minaj, there's another group on the Internet who is putting out some negative messages and negative memes about these women that, and, and these girls that you celebrate. And, you know, Brandisha Tynes and her colleagues have done some work to look at you know, the trauma that comes along with seeing racialized media images both those fictitious and non-fictitious images. So, repeatedly seeing, you know, the murder or the, you know, tasing of someone over and over in your social media streams, being in social media platforms with non-Black youth who use the N-word, and other words, to describe Black people. So, what does it mean? Um, And what her research has shown is there's trauma associated with that. So, as adults and parents and educators and clinicians who work with these girls and can connect in that way, we have to, you know, become critical consumers such that we can connect with them about the latest movie or the latest video, and we can have a deeper conversation. And in the focus groups that I was recently coding with one of my undergraduate students, she's great, I love working with her I'm glad to have her in my lab we were talking about how the girls in this focus group young adult women college-age women were moving from you know the commodification of the black identity right being aware when they're in in mixed certs, uh, communities or mixed environments how people are responding to those images and endorsing or not those images but also they moved from that to talking about colorism colorism within within the group. Uh, what does it mean to have certain black women celebrated when other black artists are not as celebrated and you can see that along the color lines. And then for them what that means socially, when they can identify where they fit along those color lines and identify how people communicate and respond and react to them. So I do believe that you know critical media literacy means that you have to learn a little bit more about the context and that you have to be willing to have those conversations. And when conversations are inappropriate, that you have to be willing to do more to have a more diversified um, imagery in your classroom or in your, in your office or your clinical space where it might be those who are celebrated, but those who are not as often celebrated. So they have a more balanced images that are reflected or part of the lesson or part of the discussion.
0: Oh, as always, Valerie, you are amazing. And I thank you so much for um, sharing your gifts, talent and treasure with us today. Oh, I'm okay. It was awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Well, that's all for today's episode of What is Black? Thanks for listening. And thank you to doctors Butler Barnes and Adams Bass for joining me today. They shared great information and ideas of how we can better support Black girls. Our Black girls matter, and they must be seen, protected, uplifted, and affirmed. Links to their work and resources for this episode will be posted on our website at whatisblack.co. Music and editing by Manny Simone. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. And to stay up to date, sign up for our newsletter at whatisblack.co. Until next time.